All right. Well, we are now in the interview portion of today's show. We have the pleasure of bringing on Jimmy Greenfield, a former reporter, columnist, and digital producer with the Chicago Tribune for 25 years. He is also the author of the book, 100 Things Cub Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. And one of the things is you should read this book, folks. It's unbelievable. Jimmy, welcome to the Big Fly Podcast. Well, thanks for having me. It's, it's great to be here with you guys. Awesome. Well, um, I do have to shout out our mutual friend, Shlomo Klubach. Uh, If I do not, um, I will probably get a text from him, but just want to give a big shout out to him. I know, jokingly, I know uh, he's the biggest sports fan that we both know. Uh, He will laugh at that as he knows that's not correct, but absolutely great guy. So thank you to Shlomo for getting us both connected because this is such an awesome opportunity um, for our podcast to be able to interview somebody who really has seen the sports world for such a long time and been able to see what's been happening uh, from obviously things like the Blackhawks to the Cubs, the White Sox and the whole world of sports. So just starting off, Jimmy, just walk us through your path to joining the Chicago Tribune. Well, I, I went to the University of Kansas and I, I studied journalism and graduated with a journalism degree. And then uh, I I had more of a traditional path, I think, back. So I graduated in 1990 and uh, I took a few years to kind of figure out exactly what I wanted to do. I, you know, I didn't know for sure I wanted to go into, into journalism and newspapers and by 1995, I spent some years, uh, you know, doing odd jobs, but also stringing for some local papers in Chicago, the Sun-Times and the Daily Southtown is another paper here. And then, I, you know, at one point I was like, you know, I kind of got to commit to this life or not. And so I decided, you know, I'm, I'm going to try to work in newspapers. And um, uh, I began f- solely focusing on that. And this was 1995 and I got a job with the Tribune as a part-time uh, editorial assistant was my title. And that meant I went to the office from Tuesday until Saturday, uh, from six until midnight. And uh, I worked on the preps desk, answering phones, taking scores, uh, writing up little blurbs for what was then a robust and fantastic high school section that doesn't even exist now for the Tribune. And I did that for 15 months and absolutely loved it. It was it was a really, really fun job. I, I, it was it was a great introduction. You're in the newsroom. You're walking into the Tribune Tower for the first time, uh, you know, every day for, for that time and met great people who, you know, I'm still close with, you know, people who had long careers at the Tribune uh, are still working in journalism. Uh, it, it was a really, really fun time. And uh, uh, what was what was great about that job was, um, well, the first thing that the guy who hired me said to me was, um, just so you know that, you know, these jobs don't turn into full-time jobs. And he wasn't saying it to be kind of a dick. He was saying, you know, this is not, you're probably not going to work here, you know, for a long time. This is a part-time job. And I think just think I'd not get your hopes up. Uh, And I hope, I hope my work ethic and my, my work spoke for myself, but what happened was the internet developed and the internet created positions for a lot of people. And a lot of guys like me who were in these part-time jobs, were hired then into internet positions. And I went to work for the Tribune's uh, website in 1997. And that really kind of began my path. Um, uh, I learned early on to say yes to every opportunity. Whenever someone said, do you want to do something? I, I, I told them, sure. I, I got to write, write some articles, did some prep work. And in 1999, uh, a mentor, a guy who was the, um, uh, um, Tribune uh, um, sports editor Dan McGrath gave me an opportunity to um, uh, write uh, some uh, cover the the uh, the uh, Cubs and the White Sox uh, on the uh, uh, on the weekends. Um, it's kind of a long story how I got to that point, but you know I, I got to then be the weekend beat writer for the Tribune, and this was you know this was the year after Sosa was um uh had his first 60 homer season you know the 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 mcguire sosa year or mcguire uh yeah the mcguire associate not a bad time to get on jump on (laughs) and that that was an amazing year because i was still working um for the internet but i would work monday through thursday for the internet 
And then on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I'd cover the Cubs if they were in town or the White Sox if they were in town. And I, you know, single, I, 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 my only interest was, 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 you know, kind of developing my career. And so working seven months, seven days a week for six months, it was just, just a dream come true. And it was fantastic. It was, it was in, in many ways, it was better than any travel job I had because you're home, you know, um, and it was baseball and I loved baseball and I, you know, it, that, that kind of given my first chance to work uh, in a, in a, in a, that kind of professional environment. Uh, and then um, in 2002, I was hired by MLB.com when they were first, you know, launching their website where they had beat writers for each team. And I covered the White Sox uh, for MLB.com for a year. And then the Tribune uh, began a newspaper called uh, Red Eye. And uh, as much as I, I enjoyed beat writing, um, I knew that I did not want to do that for a living while I was raising kids because it's not a good life when you've got kids. At least sure. I just, I viewed it that way. There are plenty of people with families who do it just fine. But for me, I knew I, I didn't want to have that. So I came back to the Tribune. They, it was it was great to come back. And I worked for Red Eye for about six years, which was uh, – in many capacities, a lot of, there's some great baseball stories from there, but it was a lot of different things, writing columns, uh, art, you know, regular news articles, uh, and just a lot of fun stuff. It was a, it was a really cool experience. The red eye, if, if, if I kind of blazed past that was a, uh, commuter tabloid that was uh, started in 2002 and it's gone now, but it was, it was, you know, this effort to kind of keep print going at a time when it was fading. It was before and it was all Chicago sports, right? No, it was not just sports. It was actually um, sports news. You know, it was it was if you can picture, it wasn't like the national or anything. It was it was a free tabloid that was handed out on on trains for people to read from for the half an hour there on the train. It's pretty much, and uh, it cool. was very devoted to pop culture. And and we we kind of had a pop culture. Uh, approach to sports it just had a lot, a lot of fun with it it was it was great you know we would i would do stories where i would um go to soldier field or, or Ridley field and do go on scavenger hunts and write about it with a colleague uh you know we got silly i had a great editor uh, chris malcolm who who created this thing called five on five which every day we'd have five new questions and answer them in a silly goofy way um <laughs> and it, it just was it was a really fun approach to sports a lot of freedom to it so I did that for about six years, and then I I went to uh, um, uh, I ran a, a website for the Tribune called Chicago Now, which was a blog network, which was which was not sports, but it was a fantastic professional experience. And then uh, I came back to the sports section in 2017 or 18, and then a, a position opened to cover the Blackhawks, and uh, I took it. And you're up to speed. <laughs> wow. So then you know from your standpoint because i think it's really it's an interesting dilemma these days when it comes to sports reporting and i think sports writing with the way that the world works now so i'd be interested to know the style of a sports reporter from or particularly you how that changed from the beginning to where it is now where you know the cancel culture and these things where you say something wrong and people attack you. Like how did, did that change at all for you or did it stay quite the same throughout the, your career? Well, that part of it certainly didn't exist when I started because there was no Twitter and you know, that's where, pe that's where people largely get themselves in trouble. And I never had any issue with Twitter, Twitter to me. <laughs> you know, I, don't, I don't, I don't go on Twitter anymore. It was, it was a lot of fun when it was, uh, when it started. Um, I, 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 wrote about it in my book a little bit, but I started a Twitter account called Cubs No History, which was some of them, you know, which was, to me, it was the most fun. Like it was the Cubs were terrible. Um, I would, I would tweet once a day whenever the Cubs got their first hit of the day, because they had <laughs> this long streak, this long streak of never getting no hit. So when the, when there's nothing to talk about with the Cubs, it gave me something to talk about it, and it was a blast. But to get back to your question, um, you didn't have to worry about that in the nineties. It was, you know, you covered the team. I'll tell you a funny story. When I was in spring training in one year there, it was the first, it was the first years that, um, uh, the internet was even doing any kind of coverage. And 
the beat writers for one of the beat writers, and I think maybe more than one, would were demanding that we have separate scrums with the print reporters than with the internet reporters because we were taking our information and putting it on the internet right away. And they're uh, like, well, we can't, that we can't fight with that because we're, we're putting where we have to wait till tomorrow to, to put our stories up. So that's obviously very, very different than what it was. And that was about, you know, that was late nineties, early, early part of the, the century. Um, and, and now you, you know, the, the type of coverage, you know, like you, you wrote a gamer in a notebook, notebooks are gone. Notebooks don't exist anymore. No, Twitter is your notebook. You know, you put up whatever you have as soon as you have it. And it's just a very, very different thing. And game stories pretty much disappeared quite a while ago, you know, um, uh, and the game stories were fun. You know, you got a chance to really kind of break it down. It was, it, you know, both, both were great, but I, but I like writing gamers. Um, and, but, but back then, like you, you, the, there was no writing for the internet. It was, you wrote your gamer, you wrote your notebook. If you had a feature to do you, you know, I remember the first real long feature I wrote was on Tony Gwynn when he came to Chicago as he was looking for his 3000th hit. And I had to go to Wrigley Field, interview Tony Gwynn, write a Tony Gwynn feature, file it before first pitch. Uh, just because I had to get it done, and then um, then write my you know you know get, watch the game, write my gamer, fi- file a notebook, and and that was my coverage for the day. And it was that kind of pacing is just gone. You know, you you're not you're not writing for print. You're writing for the internet, and they will figure out how to how to put your stuff in print. And then excellent, <clears throat> excellent. Excuse me. And then Jimmy, um, you know, sticking on this controversial topic a little bit here um i think as you know a good sports reporter the guys that write for these teams kind of have a mix of a little bit of their biases with the teams and then also being able to set that set that aside at the same time and as i look through some of the hockey articles that you wrote i could tell that that was the case but when you were covering the cubs me being an outsider looking in not as a true cubs fan there's two big controversies that i think of with the Cubs, which is around Sosa's corked bat and the whole Bartman debacle back in 03. So how did you go about mm-hmm. covering both of those, being able to cover it kind of with that non-biased approach and then also incorporating a little bit more of your hometown feels and opinions into some of those stories? Well, you know, when you're covering the team and especially in a town where you grew up and you certainly have a, a uh, an affinity for that team. Cause you, you know, I grew up a Cubs fan and there's no denying that um, you're, you have to be professional and you have to just do your job because you're not there for yourself. You're there for the, for the readers and you have to provide a, um, you, you know, your coverage has to reflect that you're, you're not there for you. So um, um, as far as the cork bat, I think for that cork bat game, I think that I was there, just watching the game. And um, if I recall correctly, we were, me and a, a colleague, a friend, we were in the bleachers and we just kind of went to work, you know, getting reaction from from fans and, and doing stuff that night. So that was a weird night. Um, that was, I forget what year, that was that 2002 or four. Do you remember what year that was? The corporate year? Wouldn't have that been after the debacle in the NLCS and everything, or was that before? Yeah. So I think, I think it, it was, was 2004. 2004. I think that's when it was. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that was, that was, you know, the, the great thing about, so the, one of my favorite things is breaking news. You know, when, when something happens, you're not expecting it. Like every, I think every journalist, especially sports journalists love breaking news. And when things kind of go haywire and that was a great example. So, you know, we just kind of, just kind of reacted like, Hey, this thing just happened here. We're in the bleachers. What should we do? And we, we just kind of went to work and it was great. Um, That's so cool that you were able to get the live reactions of the fans. You're like sitting there, you're probably writing and you're like, oh, I guess we got everything we need right here. <laughs> oh, it was, I think I think I did in my computer with me. I think I was just calling it in, whatever. He was calling, sending in quotes <laughs> or whatever it was. But just being, getting to participate in that was um, was pretty was pretty great. Um, That's amazing. That's incredible. What was, the, what was the other topic you asked me about from the Cubs? 
Uh, the Bartman debacle. Oh, yeah. That was, you know, at the time I, I was I was not any, doing any kind of official coverage, but I was writing columns for Red Eye. And I had, that night I had written a, uh, I had written a Cubs going to the World Series column because, you know, had to have it ready and and they were I remember being in the office and um and everything changed and and my immediate reaction was they're just treating this guy terribly it was you know I, it, you could tell that he was just getting even that was sort of the one of the first times when the internet and somebody was just just absolutely destroyed like his life was changed I don't want to say destroyed and speak for him but it, it changed overnight and um, a few months afterwards in February, this was really before we knew how committed he was to not talking about what happened to him. Um, my one of my editors said, OK, let's let's go try to do a follow up. You know, we know he's being silent, but let's go try to find him. So I drove out to his parents house in a north suburb and, you know, knocked, found his house, knocked on his door and and told her who I was and I was clearly not the first reporter who had shown up and she was very sweet and she just asked me to leave <laughs> in, a, in a nice way his mother and I did and um there was nothing you could I mean it was there was no there was no finding the guy he just didn't want to talk and he stuck to it and I forget what I wrote about that time but uh, if anything but it was you know this search for this individual who was just starting to show that he just didn't, he did not want to discuss it for I think for all the right reasons. Yeah, because we I actually that's one of my questions I had for later, which obviously we don't have to talk about later. But it was actually when we we're going to talk about your book a little bit. But um, I just found it hilarious that it literally says I went to the door, she asked me to leave, so I left. It was just hilarious the way it was written and everything. But I was really intrigued to hear if there was any. Anything in particular about that story that just went haywire or wild, or was it just kind of a simple interaction? Yeah, I mean, you know, you get a little bit anxious because you, you know, you 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 don't know how they're going to react. I, I knew enough that it was they were just a tri- typical suburban family. When you know someone doesn't want to be spoken to, you're a little tentative. Um, if I recall now, I did speak to. I, I must have written about it because I'm remembering now that I spoke to a neighbor, and the neighbor was chatty. And that was great. And so that's all I needed. You know, the, the, the neighbor talked to me and then I had a story. So um, uh, and it was it was that, that whole time was so weird, you know, because you had you had because Bartman was so famous. He was so immediately famous. And it was just you just as, as a as all of us who follow the Cubs in whatever way we did, you knew that that was just ne- momentous. It was never going to go away. And yeah. then over the years, you had people debating Bartman's culpability with it. And I was always in the side of it was not his fault at all. Nope. Just stop it. And there were a lot of people who were the opposite and, and probably still do. But um, that was a really, really strange time. Yeah, yeah, it truly was. And the stories and everything, and of course, the in-game play that's not discussed, which you discuss in your book of Alex Gonzalez's error and some other issues that happened during the game, which were truly the reasons why they lost that game. But any any particular interview uh, that you performed that was your favorite, I'm guessing you've done quite a bit. I mean, you interviewed Tony Gwynn. Uh, I mean, one of probably one of, would be one of my favorite interviews to do as well. But in particular, let's say like through Chicago, uh, Chicago sports, your favorite interview you've done. In terms of favorite interview like that, it's a, it's so much to do with when somebody is easy to talk to and you're getting a story. You know, Tony Gwynn was 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 famously good to everybody he spoke to. He was, you know, I didn't, you know, I, did, I had no reason for him to treat me well. And, and I went and asked him for some time and he gave me 25 minutes at his locker. And it's one of the great things about baseball uh, was that, you know, the, you get there, the locker room's open for a long time and it's just people sitting at their lockers and you go up to them and say, can I talk to you? And, you, and either they do or they don't. And it kind of created this, this, uh, um, uh, column that I had created for Red Eye with my editor uh, called Just Asking. And what we did was we realized that every single uh, Major League Baseball player comes in town. 
because of the Cubs and the White Sox. So I would write these questions that were some odd, some uh, just baseball related. And I'd go to the, I'd go to the ballparks for one day when the team was in town for a home, uh, for a series. And I'd go to say, you know, go to, you know, the Padres and go talk to Tony Gwynn and um, whoever else was on the Padres at the time. And I would collect these answers from major league baseball players. And then I would run one question with like nine answers from, you know, different players from different teams. And what I, and so you, you, you know, tell us about, you know, the question might be, what was your favorite little league memory? And you'd get these stories from people and you realize that they, they love baseball as much as you do. Um, the interesting thing about that was by going to every clubhouse and talking to five to six players from every team, you quickly learn who will talk to you and who won't. And, you know, you, you try not to judge them because maybe they're having a bad day, but, you know, you, you find out who the, the really good interviews are and the, and the people who are thoughtful. And I, you know, one of the things I remember is when you'd ask somebody a question and they kind of take a deep breath and they'd go, good question, you know, and then they'd give it some thought. And I, for some reason, I always remember Jason Kendall would play for the Pirates primarily a little bit with the Cubs. He played for a lot of teams, I think in the end, but he had that really thoughtful look like he was going to sit down and give me good, good answers. And, uh, and I, I love when you found somebody, um, you know, like that. Uh, uh, hockey guys were are are pretty good. You know, they do kind of tend to speak in cliches, but um, for the most part, they're all they're all pretty good people. Um, the uh, um, goalie for the Blackhawks, I was named Robin uh, Leonard. Uh, I'm spacing out his last name. Yeah, Robin Leonard. He oh, was yeah. just the most the most. He was there for for my year, and he was. Oh the most interesting, thoughtful, uh, uh, he was, he wanted to talk about good topics and he was, a, he was just a good dude. And, and, um, uh, and, and most of the guys in the Hawks were, were like that. However, you know, like guys like Brent Seabrook and Duncan Keith, who'd been there forever, who'd been interviewed for, you know, for years and years and really had no use for the media at that point. It just wasn't as interesting for me. You know, even Kane and Taves weren't that interesting because everybody wanted them. Um, and, uh, so yeah, but, but there, I found similarities between baseball players and hockey players. Interesting. And what were those? Well, just that they were, they, they came from, uh, I think a lot of small towns, you know, and so they were just good guys who were willing to talk to you. And I think maybe, maybe it's changed a little bit, but I think it's still by and large that, you know, they, they grow up in small towns and they, you know, farms in Canada, you know, from small places around the world now in baseball and um, just had a had really, you know, good experiences talking to players from both in both sports. Excellent. Excellent. Now, let's flip it to an article that you wrote. And if you don't know, it's totally fine. But any article that you wrote that was in your eyes at the time, or maybe it was controversial that you knew you were putting out that turned out to be something that blew up out of proportion, anything like that in your career? I don't, I don't think so. The only thing that's funny, you know, uh, throw because the internet throwaways sometimes blow up somewhat. Um, when I was covering the Hawks, we were, if you remember, they went to play in a game in, in uh, Prague to open the season about three or four years ago. And during the middle of a game, uh, I'm following on Twitter and I see, looks like Pat Foley said something. And um, he's, he'd made some offhand comment about a player on the, uh, actually we were, it was, it was the preseason, the, the exhibition game in Berlin. And one of the players had a Hispanic name on the Berlin team. He was from California, actually. And he made an insensitive uh, remark about how it's the kind of name you hear uh, for a shortstop. And, you know, it was not the worst thing you've ever heard, but it was insensitive. And uh, people on Twitter, on Twitter got kind of riled up. And, uh, you know, this was sort of the cancel culture re response. Uh, I don't think it was a, I don't think it was a cancel canceling thing, but it was uh, it kind of required 
Pat Foley to respond. So I went to the Blackhawks. I said, you know, I'd like to see if you can get me a, a response to this because this is happening. And I got a quick response, uh, wrote something, and that was the most widely read story of my of my career on the web by not even close. I mean, you can right. you can see the numbers and just you know people are googling it. People wanted to read about it, and it was it was really a nothing. It was just this is what happened. This is his, this is response of Pat Foley and the team, and you know it, it it wasn't an opinion. It wasn't a column. It was just sharing what what the story was, and it was worth writing about. It just was not you know the fact that that was the most widely read thing I wrote was was is bizarre. And it's bizarre, and, and, and it, it's funny how it literally goes with what you talked about earlier where the cancel culture and what it is and Twitter and the immediate reaction, you know, I don't know if you saw the whole thing that happened with Skip Bayless um, the other day with the whole, you know, that whole thing where he could have talked about that the next day on his TV show if we don't have Twitter and it's a completely different perspective. Like I was even one of those people who tweeted like, why is this human even allowed to be have it this much of a following it was because I was emotional about the whole thing. But I think like what you mentioned is just some of these things can happen and then they would happen and be discussed the next day where everyone would kind of be able to, you know, dwindle down from it. And it wasn't necessarily something so emotionally appealing for what it is in the moment. It's absolutely yeah. crazy how it is today. It's crazy. It, it is, you know, in the, in the, in the Skip Bayless case, the thing is he didn't have to say anything, you know, almost every situation in Twitter, it's an unforced error. He just, you know, and what he wrote was you could kind of see he was dabbling with saying something provocative, you know, and to, and then he, and, cause see, that's what he does. That's his whole career. That's how he's making, you know, $10 million a year. Yeah. Um, but when it, comes down to it that there was no wiggle room to be provocative in that situation that was horrific and uh just you you, you couldn't you couldn't play with that there was no room to to be to do what he did yeah and yeah. and everyone just you know reacted you know if he wasn't an absolutely uh uh i, I don't want to call him a dick but you know, <laughs> Sure comes off as one. Um, and yeah. I, I worked with the Tribune. He was a columnist when I was working there. And so I spent a little time with him in the press box. Um, uh, but he was a he's a terrific writer. Um, but I thought that was just, you know, that was just he came in with a reputation for doing that and he did it. And, you know, then he, he got out as quickly as he could. And I think he got out safely. Oh, he sure did. He sure did. And uh, yeah, I mean, we can go on for hours about that whole thing, but I think what would be really cool is to talk a little bit about your book, uh, Jimmy. I mean, this this thing is, uh, it was just so much fun to read. I mean, some things in here, as a Cubs fan, I'm not going to sit here and say I'm the most loyal Cub fan in the world and know everything about the Cubs, right? Because the history and things you're talking about from 1907 to little, you know, itty bitty things, you know, with your, you know, at number 12 or number 13 in the book of things that happened with the Cubs is so unique and so cool. Um, But I do have a few questions for you. First off, what is your definition of a Cubby occurrence? (laughs) <laughs> well, I think a cubby occurrence, which has kind of been put to bed with the World Series being won, <laughs> the cubby occurrence was when something happened that was so ridiculous that it just played into the stereotype of the Cubs being not just lovable losers, but losers. You know, when, when um, you know, and I, I think Paul Sullivan is the one who, who – uh, coined the term, you know, Jose Cardinal's eyelids get turned upside down and he misses game at misses time. Um, you know, I, I can't recall the, the, the ones that are in the book, but just when, when something so ridiculous happens that you can't, uh, you can't even believe it, you know, that's, that's what it was. And I feel like, I feel like everything was reset when they won the world series, you know, you don't, it you really don't was. Have, because it was funny because it was Lou Pinella of all people, which is kind. Of, it makes sense. It makes sense that it was Lou who would say something like that as well. Yeah. Okay. Oh, he's the one who said Cubby Curry. He he did, and and so the quote that you have in the book is, uh, you know, it, I think it was talking about 
just like the title or trying to bring a title to Chicago. And he said, you know, unless there's an injury or a cubby occurrence. And then you mentioned in the book that it was something where Lou didn't really, he always pushed away from the topic, which is just hysterical. Cause he's like, I literally dug myself a hole and now I'm trying to make sure I don't dig too much more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the great thing about him was he didn't care. He was, he, you know, he was, he's, he was like, you know, driving 55 most of the time. And then when he'd go up to 120, it was, it was fantastic. But um, yeah, I mean, the Cubs were, you know, they're a way of life, you know, and, and uh, it was, I, I don't know, you guys probably grew up what in the, in the, you guys were what, mid twenties, uh, late twenties. So um, I grew up in the, in the seventies when the Cubs were just miserable and, and, uh, you know, it, in, in eight, so 84 was the first team in my lifetime that was ever really good that won anything. And, and to me, that'll always be my favorite Cubs team, even, even more than the 2016 team. Cause you know, I was 17 years old in 84 and, um, they, it was, it was a miracle that the Cubs could actually win. And they had so many players. I remember that season so well, it's better than as better as much as any season that I, I remember as a kid. Who was your uh, favorite Cub from that team? Um, it was for sure Ryan Sandberg. Um, but I, you know, I, I loved Gary Matthews. I loved Rick Sutcliffe. I loved, um, uh, Leon Durham, uh, Jody Davis. It was, you know, you just had these, you know, you, you, you know, and, and you don't remember this maybe, but Bill Buckner was on that team until he was traded. Um, and he was my favorite cub for years. Cause he was the only one who was good for a long time. And he was, he was a great, Bill Buckner was a great player. He's, he's, he's a guy who should be in the hall of fame for me. Um, and, uh, you know, we could talk about that Red Sox occurrence for a little bit if we wanted to, but that's a different podcast. Probably. <laughs> um, well, so it, it's, it was rough. It was rough. Yeah. Well, so then, um, just a couple other questions just to ask from the book. Like, you know, obviously you go into Kerry Wood and Mark Pryor in the book, just outstanding, just in that little two to three pages, being able to describe what these guys meant to the Cubs organization and what Cubs fan, Cubs fans thought these guys could become. If you were to go back and you had to choose in a draft to go with Kerry Wood or Mark Pryor, and you and they had no injuries, who would you have taken? You mean assuming they would have had the and they would have played at the peak of their career? The peak of their career. Who are you taking? Oh, Kerry Wood. I, 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 yeah, I just think his his uh, his best was was insanely good. I mean, have you ever gone back and watched parts of the nineteen ninety eight twenty strikeout game? Yeah, he actually had a catcher that wasn't even supposed to be catching for him that day. I remember that whole story. It's wild. Yeah, it was uh, it was a um, Mar- uh, what was his name? Sandy Martinez. Yep, and. Um, uh, his his slurve his his curveball just it was it was so wicked that game and he but he had a lot of good games he had a lot of terrific games that year where he was you know he struck out a ton i think he struck out 13 the next game or something like that and you know he never when he when he when he um had the tommy john surgery the next year he didn't go down he didn't um he wasn't bad i mean he had some really good years he had a nice solid career it just was never it was not it was not the roger clemens career that everybody was kind of expecting and um you know but but you know but he had a really nice career mark Pryor, on the other hand is really a just a, a sad story you know because he was supposed to be a hall of famer he was great right away he was fantastic in 2003 he was was good right away and it's it's remarkable to think that he threw his last pitch in 2006 you know i think he might have played minor league after that for a little bit but he he was you know i think he was decent in 2004 and 5 i think they had he pitched a little bit he, he was dealing with with his injuries and then he was atrocious in 2006 and that was it you know he never played again and that's i mean he was done at 26 25 26 years old and I, I still can't believe that. I mean, I would, I would have thought he would pitch for, you know, 15 years. And the, if you remember the talk about him with his um, pitching coach, Tom House, was that Mark Pryor had 
such great mechanics that he wasn't going to get hurt, that he was a kind of easy throwing heat that he was not going to break down. And it's debatable why he did, you know, whether it was that uh, um, uh, collision with, I think it was Marcus Giles of the Braves in 2004, or I think it was four. No, no, it's because it was three, I think. And then he was out for a bit and he came back. Anyway, so that collision kind of maybe hastened his his uh, his body breaking down. Um, so, but but those are those those two were 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 you know great Cub pitchers who uh, you know you 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 expected more from them in the end, and the reasons they weren't great were had nothing to do with who they were as pitchers or people. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was. It's tough to watch, and I agree with the whole prior take where it's almost sad. And you mentioned in the book that he got ridiculed a lot for things that probably he didn't have much control over. Where you know Kerry Wood can handle the pain, but Mark Pryor can't, and just an interesting dilemma there in reference to kind of where pitchers' careers can go and how the media can you know can probably bog them down a little bit and and do that to their careers. So. Um, now, there was a segment in your book that was really, really interesting. And if you don't remember, it's totally fine because I know it's there's a lot in this book. But there's a segment where it's called the College of Coaches. Yeah. What the yeah, hell the was Cubs. that? So the, the Cubs were, were uh, saddled with one of the worst owners uh, in the history of sports in PK and he decided in 1960, I forget it was 61 or 62 to forego the tradition of having one manager and have a collection of coaches run the team on a, on a rotating basis every, what was it? I forget it was like a week or 10 games. And he tried it for a few months and, quickly realized it was just an absolutely terrible idea. And they kind of just let, you know, let one guy continue on for most of the season. Um, it, it's, you know, it, it was a terrible idea. It, it didn't, it obviously didn't work. You know, it didn't work probably because the, you know, they had a bad team. This was not a good team they had. Um, but, uh, it, you know, it kind of played into, I don't know if you're following what happened, what, what's going on with the Indianapolis Colts now and like just bringing in this guy who's not a head coach to be the coach when you when you do something that is goes way against what's established for your sport you run the risk of being ridiculed if it doesn't work and it didn't work and it, you know it, it 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 left the cubs even looking like you know bigger fools uh the, the one thing i'll say about pk wrigley was he gave us wrigley field you know he kept it up to up to speed all these years so even when uh, when the team was terrible, he put a lot of money into Wrigley Field. So, uh, you know, by comparison, you know, Comiskey Park was just a few years older than Wrigley Field. And in 19, in the late mid eighties, it was breaking down and they had to, they had to tear it apart. They, they, they decided to build a new stadium. Um, Wrigley Field didn't, didn't, uh, wasn't, wasn't in the same situation. It was, you know, in a, in a point where you could keep it going. And it's, I mean, I can't, I can't see them ever leaving relief field ever, you know, they'll, they'll prop it up. They'll keep it going. The Cubs will never have another home ever, you know? Uh, and, you know, if this is someone's listening to this a hundred years from now and they're playing in their 50th year of uh, Sosa field off in Arlington Heights or something like that, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> got that wrong, the Bears. But, <laughs> right. The, 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 the multiplex. Uh, but Wrigley Field is, is, you know, was, was the greatest. It was, I, you know, I think all of us who have been there have had such great experiences and, and, you know, even when the Cubs are terrible, you had Wrigley Field. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I could ask you, I have 10, 12 more questions that I could ask you about the book. Uh, but I do want to be respectful of your time and I do want to talk about the world of baseball today. And obviously from your perspective, it's, Probably even it's probably different from ours, just from the where you've seen the game grown. Um, have you now seen uh, two strikes that have happened when the White Sox had like ninety four, ninety five, I believe, and then I mean, as a growing up, I mean, yes, yes, like just growing up. 
I mean, I don't remember the the work stoppages from the 70s, but there were work stoppages as the union was getting going. So the 70s had a whole bunch of labor problems, you know, as the as the union was growing, as Marvin Miller was asserting himself and and the owners were fighting. And, you know, um, so I, I don't think the first strike was until 81, but there were work stoppages throughout the 70s, uh, whether it was a strike or a lockout. Uh, there were labor issues. There was a strike in 81 that ended up with this weird uh, situation where you had a first half of the season and a second half of the season. And I think it was the Reds or the Reds or the Astros. It was, there was a team that had the best record in baseball and did not make the playoffs because they did not win the first half and they did not win the second half. It might have been the Expos even. Um, so, uh, and, and that was, that was a, you know, that was a rough season. That was before we really kind of knew how bad things were going to get. And then, of course, you had the um, the uh, collusion of the 80s. And then it and then that played it a role in in the uh, uh, strike uh, or the uh, of, of 94 and 95 for a little bit. And, uh, you know, we could talk about that for a long time. But, um, you know, baseball's had a really tortured path to where it is now. And now the question is going to be, where do they go from here? Yeah. And just from your perspective, as baseball now grows to these astronomical contracts and where we now see that teams where it's this almost waves of teams spending money and some teams, unfortunately not. I know that's something that you and I discussed initially when we first chatted, but just your thoughts on that. I just kind of want to hear just like kind of an open forum, just where baseball is going and do you see positives? Where are the negatives? Just those types of things. Oh, there's, there's, I mean, there's so many negatives in, in the way baseball is constructed. Now it used to be that you had a, uh, salary structure where the top teams, uh, you know, weren't going to be so far in front of the bottom teams. Um, you know, we, we, you know, we compare, I, you know, the, the best comparison, but really all the other, the other three major sports you can compare baseball to because they have, they have some element of a cap where no other, you can't, you can't have a, um, a New York Mets, Steve Cohen situation in any of the other sports. It, it's not permissible under their uh, collective bargaining agreement. You have caps, you have, um, uh, owners cannot go off the, 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 um, the, the reservation and just start doing whatever they want to do in baseball. You can, um, you know, the best example I have is that you, you can't have a Green Bay Packers exist in, in Major League Baseball. You can't have a town of 300,000 um, where, you know, compete against um, New York. And um, you have in the NBA, you have Oklahoma City, you have you have smaller cities, you, you have um, in baseball, you have, you know, the L.A., you have New York, you have Chicago, you have large metropolises bringing in far more revenue and those teams uh, have better opportunities than the small small market teams. The revenue sharing is, is a, is a gray area in it where uh, you know, the small market teams get some money, but that doesn't change the fact that if you have the money to pay one guy 30 million a year, it's not going to change when, the Mets can pay five guys $30 million a year, you know, and how many players are actually worth that kind of money? You know, um, the great thing about hockey uh, is that because there's a true hard cap, um, you know, you're, you're going to do well based on your drafting by who you sign as free agents, the luck, the luck of who turns into a great player, um, and if you can't afford somebody, you're going to have to get rid of them. You're going to have to make changes. You know, you can't just stash players like um, you can in baseball. Um, and my, my big problem with baseball is, is that the small market teams do, they can, they have such a small room for error. Um, the, the big market teams can make a mistake and move on. 
It's just not the same thing. And I, I, I don't know where you guys stand on this, but I will, I will, I, this is, this is the biggest thing that I think is wrong in sports today. Uh, aside from, you know, some of the, uh, uh, you know, I won't get into the um, issues as far as how uh, athletes treat other people, but uh, the economics of baseball, I think have our, I think, I think it has broken baseball. I think it's, I don't want to say ruined because the sport is great, but you, you don't have one team. You don't have 32 teams all competing in the same way. It just, it's not how it, it exists. And it, frankly, I don't blame owners or small market teams for not spending money, whether it's a protest or as um, they just don't want to play that game because you're, it's, you're, you, you're not, um, you're, you're not in a position where you can ever win that battle. You know, you see some of these teams try to, uh, try it every once in a while. Like, you know, remember the Marlins signed a whole bunch of players maybe about seven, eight years ago. And then they realized, Oh, geez, we, what did we do? You know, and they got rid of everybody. They got rid of Stan. They got rid of they Mark Burley. They got rid of Jose Reyes and they just traded off all their highly, highly uh, paid players. And we'll see what, you know, like the Padres are a good example. You know, can they really afford to have like a $280 million salary uh, 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 payroll? You know, is it going to work for them? Um, and maybe they don't care. The thing about the thing about Mark, uh, Steve Cohen of the Mets is, I don't know, I don't know if he's going to lose money or make money, but it doesn't matter if he loses money because he's worth $16 billion. <laughs> yeah. You know, he can lose a hundred million dollars every year for 20 years and have, and, and it would not matter to him. So that's the situation we're in with, with the Mets, for example, yeah. and we'll see how other teams kind of follow. Them. So what, what do you guys think? I, I, whenever I talk about this, I go off on a tangent and I get going and, and I, you get passionate I, about it. Christian, I'd love for you to kind of chime in here, man. Yeah. Well, this is something that we've been talking about a little bit <clears throat> as free agency has been going on and stuff. And, especially with like what you said with Steve Cohen and how he's throwing all this money at all these different guys to bring them in and sort of build a super team. And I like how you touched on these other sports that can't do that because I know, you know, we talked about hockey a little bit before how you're really into hockey and as am I, and we're seeing, you know, the best player in hockey right now is Connor McDavid who makes, I believe 12 and a half million dollars a year and that's his cap. But then on the Mets, you know, you look down there, payroll or the Padres and you're seeing guys that are maybe the third, fourth, fifth, eighth best player in that organization who are making 28, 30 million dollars. And but I think it's I think it is ruining it a little bit as well because you're not seeing as much competition for some of these free agents. And obviously it comes into the market size and what teams can afford here and what they can afford there. And where they want to spend. Um, but one of the things, you know, like in basketball, a couple years ago, we saw the Cavs and the Warriors were in every single NBA finals for three or four years in a row, it seemed like, because they were throwing the bucket, all these different guys to build these super teams. And the only beautiful thing about baseball in that sense is that even if you have the best players, you still might not win. Um, and it's still a fair game for everybody. But I also don't like how they're putting all these superstar players in one, two, or three markets to kind of all play. Um, but I like what the Cubs have done by sort of figuring out how to allocate that money into a few different guys that could come out, like Tyone, for example, who is a pitcher that I thought was super undervalued, and the Cubs gave him a really good deal. And then they got Dansby in there with Bellinger and are now starting to build that a little bit. Um, but yeah, I think it's, I, I don't think it's great for the sport necessarily to see what teams like the Mets are starting to do. And cause in the old days, that was sort of just what the Yankees did. They were the only team that would give everybody these, you know, the money that they could because they were the Yankees and they could afford it. Um, but now, yeah, with all these teams kind of doing this, it just takes away from some of those smaller teams and you have to see Oakland do what they do all the time, which is build their prospects up and then 
dish them off and find friendly deals with the other organizations that can afford to pay those guys when it comes time for them to get those extensions. Yeah, I don't necessarily know what type of cap they can create at this point because they've developed. I mean, this is just getting ridiculous when it comes to the Steve Cohen thing is so scary in reference to where baseball can go because now you're talking about what is a luxury tax? Why is this even a thing? Is this supposed to be some form of a cap or are these owners going to have to say, screw it? And then now we're going to start to see these extraordinary contracts that start to hit the world of baseball. And it takes out the beauty of the guy who develops through the farm system, the guy who took six, seven, eight years to come up to the majors and be a professional hitter and be a professional pitcher or, or fielder or catcher or whatever that is. I just think it's really sad to see that we have started to now see that teams are like, we, well, we don't believe in our guys internally, or we're not going to worry about that. We're just going to buy, buy, buy. And then because I have all the money in the world, I can do that. While these other organizations are able to build everything up, I, it's this whole dilemma where it's like, it's exciting to see these guys get paid, but then it's like, why, why are we spending $40 million on a player when that money could be allocated to other resources as we saw with the Astros, for example, who, mind you, weren't necessarily spending that much money. I mean, at the end of the day, they had Bregman. I think they had Verlander, or they obviously had Verlander, Altuve. But, you know, Jeremy Pena, you know, Kyle Tucker, uh, Framir Valdez, Christian Javier, some of these guys where it's like, I would like to see more teams start to go back to that because that is what's going to sustain success over the long term. Well, I don't yeah. see the Mets sustaining success for the length of hopefully, if, well, hope, we'll see if Correa signs at this point, but how do you sustain success over 13 years when you give a guy that much money? Well, so. if, if if you can give as much money as you want, then it, it, it's, you know, you can do that. But I, I think what you're saying about building up the farm system isn't, I don't think teams in any way are not focusing on that. I think it's a hard thing to do. Um, and the teams that have done it best are the ones, still the ones who've had the most success the Dodgers and the Astros. They've they've consistently had among the top farm systems. When the Cubs became great, it was because they built a great farm system and then augmented it with signings and um, uh, you know and veterans. Yeah. So you you do have to have the farm system still. Buying and, bu- and buying just to buy, you know, as the Angels and the Rangers, you know, can attest, that just doesn't that doesn't just work. You can't just yeah. do that and, and find success. But it's like um, hiding away. It's like hiding away the troubles that you guys have internally. That's what it feels like for me, at least. Yeah, it's it's a quick fix, and that's not it's not it doesn't work. Um, uh, but but it, the, the problem is that when you have uh, like a good example to me is because it was such a it was such a perfect example was Garrett Cole. So, you know, really, really great prospect, not great immediately with the Pirates. Um, Good, not great. But then he becomes great. And then he becomes, he comes out of, uh, uh, he he hits his free agency and he's, and he's got it, he's got to go. And so the pirate, the pirates have no choice because they're not going to be able to afford him. You know, the, you know, the White Sox have made a lot of uh, I think kind of do it like kind of halfway, but the White Sox to me were really, really smart in the way that they gave these guys, uh, they bought out their early years, they gave them good contracts and they, you know, built this team of, of really good players who are under team friendly deals while also making their players filthy rich. Now, no player has to sign a deal. He doesn't want to sign, but um, the White Sox were smart about that. The pro- in their case, the problem was, they didn't go out and get, they kind of, they were kind of cheap uh, on the, on the fringes, you know, they haven't gone out and then really finalized their, their plan. They thought that was enough. And I don't think it is. Um, but, you know, you know, you know, it's, it's that these, like these teams, like, you know, the Royals and the Pirates and the, you know, um, the, the Rays even, you know, the Rays, the, the Rays are just so, well run that you bring these guys up and you got to get rid of a bunch of them. But um, it's a problem that other teams don't have. I mean, look at, look at the Yankees. You know, they had this guy, 
go out there and have the, the greatest season ever. And the response isn't to the response is to give them, you know, $40 million a year. And I'm not begrudging it. You know, you, you get what, what someone's willing to pay you. And the, the other point I want to make in all of this is that I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the union. I, I love the fact that unions are a big part of sports. And I think that they deserve everything they can get. But that doesn't change the fact that the single worst thing that's happened to baseball to me in the, in the last 25 years is the refusal by the MLB union, the MLBPA, to agree to a cap or a floor. They're fundamentally opposed to that. And that's their decision. They can decide what they want to do. They can they can um, say, no, we're not going to do it and figure other ways to, to, to bargain with uh, the owners. Um, but that's, I think, the, the ultimate reason why this situation exists is because they won't let a true cap exist in, in baseball. And the owners can the owners can say, well, we'll lock you out until you give us that, but they're, they would lose too much money. And uh, I don't think that it's the pirate, Pirates and the Royals owners who are the ones who are really making the big decisions for, for baseball. Yeah. Yeah. Christian, anything to add there? Or? No, it's, a, it's interesting um, to think about for sure because just the way everything's been with – kind of how how it's been and what what we saw last year with all the bargaining and everything like that um you know who knows what will happen the next time that this CBA runs and what they want to do based on these contracts but i mean i would i would i think from the players union perspective that they they don't necessarily mind some of these um not having that cap in order to get some of these players that big time money um, because obviously a lot of it's coming from those big markets and they want the players that are making the money for those big markets to be able to get paid. And without having a cap, I think they're allowed to sort of pay those guys, like give judge $40 million and still be able to fund all the other players that they have in there that they want to bring in and, and do, you know, for whether it's to, to win games or to sell tickets or sell merchandise, whatever the end goal is with all these guys. Um, and I think, yeah, I think if you in baseball, just because there's so many players, um, you know, if you put the cap in, I think from a union perspective, it might sort of take away from what they, what they work to be able to get the players in order to be, paid what they think they should be paid if that makes sense for sure i mean like like for example like we you know we, we both follow hockey pretty closely and if Connor mcdavid was it was on the open market and he and there was no cap he'd be taking a much much bigger percentage of his team's mm-hmm. uh, payroll but because they have to work within these constraints it it keeps down his his earnings right you know, if that if that was in baseball, you know, Aaron Judge maybe maybe the only the most they can give him is thirty million, which is obviously still a ton of money. But does that ten million dollars then go to somebody else, or does it get spread out? You know, is it is it um, you know, or does it just go into the pockets of the owners? Which is why I don't I don't begrudge the uh, players' union for looking out for their what they think is right. That that's their job. That's the, that's what they need to do. Um, but I think it has had the effect of, of creating this inequality among teams that affects uh, uh, the on-field outcomes. Um, you know, you can go back and you can say, well, you know, over the last 20 years, we've had 18 teams in the world series and we've had parity, but you know, over any period of time, you're going to get a lot of teams who like, look, the Royals had that great run, but they had a window. They had mm-hmm. a little window. The pirates had a window in the, you know, about seven, eight years ago, that window was, was brief. They didn't have the luck of, you know, and, you know, base, baseball playoffs are really kind of lucky. You did you know, where you, you, you know, you get a world series, you know, um, the Royals won the World Series, and so they're maybe they're viewed as having more success than the Yankees in the last fifteen years. But it's obviously not. You know, the Yankees are always competitive. 
Um, I think they missed out maybe a year or two in the playoffs. I forget exactly. Um, but, you know, these other teams, they have they have little windows, and the rich teams do not have windows. They are able to, uh, you know, avoid rebuilding for the most part. Um, and uh, it, it, it irks me because I, when I, when I, you know, you see the teams that go into the season, it really isn't about going into the season. They go into the off season knowing they're not going to get better. They're not going to compete for the same players that every other team is competing for. And, you know, it makes me sad because it, it was, that wasn't always the way, you know, in the eighties, you really had, it was, it was not this, it was not the same system. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jimmy, we're run up on an hour here. Um, this has been so much fun. We really, really appreciate your time. I think we are going to ask you to come on again. Uh, that's the goal with every guest we bring on the podcast. Um, we will send the contract that requires you to come on and again in the future, um, which is a total we'll joke. Sign but... I'll send it on. <laughs> <laughs> but no, this, um, man, this thank you so I, much. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's been yeah. This is so much fun. We we're we're young guys just having fun with a podcast. This obviously isn't our full time job, but the fact that we got to talk to somebody with you know your your credibility and your history with in reference to just Chicago sports, but just in general in reference to seeing how the world of sports has developed, and uh, it's just been an awesome awesome conversation. So, Jimmy, thank you so much for hopping on. Um, any last words or anything to add before we sign off here? No, I just I, I really appreciate you uh, having this uh, podcast because I think that the 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 fact that you guys can do this is one of the cool things about about what's what's possible now. You know, this wasn't possible, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. And now guys like yourselves can go out and do what you want to do and make a name for yourself. And, and who knows where it'll take you. And that's, you know, th- that's the exciting part, I think, to be to be starting out. You know, if I was. 25 now maybe this is what i would have done instead of working nights at the tribune for <laughs> god knows how many how many uh <laughs> late into the night but you know it's you guys are really good and it's this was a great conversation so i really appreciate it excellent well jimmy thanks again for hopping on the big fly pod and we'll talk to you again here soon yeah thanks jimmy maybe